good evening. If you would turn in your Bible to Genesis 1, we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 31. We're going to complete chapter 1 tonight. Thank you, Adam, and musicians, praise team, for leading us in worship, which is a vital means by which God satisfies us with his love. When we're not in corporate worship, we're cutting ourselves off from one of God's central means of satisfaction. But I'm glad you're here tonight. And let's pray the Lord would again satisfy us with his love through the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you uh, for the satisfaction we have uh, that is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would see Jesus tonight. We would pray to see him tonight uh, as the Greeks desired in John 12, even in Genesis 1. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness tonight. And Lord, we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. The moment when most of us likely became aware aware that the that transgenderism was about to become a major issue in our culture was back in April of 2015 when the then Bruce Jenner came out as a trans woman in an interview with Louisville's own Diane Sawyer on the 2020 television program by 2017, Jenner had completely, um, he had had a complete gender reassignment surgery, and Bruce was now known as Caitlin. And so since then, debates about transgender bathroom policies, uh, the appropriate way to use pronouns, and even um, the implications of this issue for women's sports has become a major discussion in the public uh, square. With regard to the latter issue, the implications of uh, transgender women playing women's sports, it's remarkable if you've noticed on the sports uh, channels as of late, they don't mention it. They're all about justice, but then they don't touch that with a 10-foot pole. No articles have been written on it, from ESPN or Fox Sports uh, Net. Uh, no uh, feature shows have been devoted to it. They're not touching it. Uh, for instance, University of Penn's Leah Thomas, which is, who was a 22-year-old trans woman, formerly known as Will, who now swims for Pennsylvania's women's swim team, swam the two fastest times in the country back in December at a women's meet. As Will Thomas, he competed for three years for the women's or the men's team up until November of 2019. And yet no one's touching this, even though it's going to have dire implications for our women and women's sports. It can conceivably come a day when every record that is bro uh, that's held right now by women will be broken by men who decided to claim that they are women. Now, how do we get here? And I want to discuss this just a moment, just to educate us a little bit on this. I, I've learned a lot of this from uh, Carl Truman in his 
monumental book, The, the Modern Self. But the basic ideology of transgenderism finds its greatest ally in what is known as the Yogyakarta Principles, named after the Indonesian city where they were formulated in 2006. And so these principles were formulated a little over 15 years ago. And these principles are the foundational text for LGBTQ+. Many believe that the plus, we don't even want to know what the plus is. Um, Those rights are founded or grounded by these principles. Um, The groups that formulated the original principles for the Yogyakarta principles were the International Commission of Jurists and the International Service for Human Rights. And so even though neither one of these groups has official governmental status, numerous countries all over the world have adopted the principles of Yogyakarta and wherever sexual orientation or gender identity has legal protections, it's a safe bet those principles are the biggest influence. In the opening paragraph, for instance, of the official text of the Yogyakarta principles, it says sexual orientation and gender identity are integral to every person's dignity and humanity and must not be the basis for discrimination or abuse. Well, it goes on to say, understanding gender identity to refer to each person's deeply felt internal and individual experience of gender. Notice, it begins with your internal self which may or may not correspond with the sex assigned at birth, including the personal sense of the body, which may involve, if freely chosen, modification of bodily appearance or function by medical, surgical, or other means, and other expressions of gender, including dress, speech, and mannerisms. That's the Yogi Carter principles. That's the uh, introduction to, that, to those principles. Um, A few points from this. Sexual orientation is defined now merely by your desires. Second, gender is divided from biology. So the progressives were telling us, trust the science when it came to mask, and now they're saying, forget the science. Third, gender is assigned at birth or by one's later choice, it's not simply recognized. But maybe the most troubling aspect of the Yogyakarta principles is it's principle 24, the right to found a family. Everyone has the right to found a family regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. And I can assure you, as relatively conservative as Auburn University is to to most uh, schools, that's being taught not by our professors at Lakeview, but by in, in many classrooms at Auburn University. Well, the point of the message tonight is not to pick on this movement. In fact, uh, we aren't to speak ill of them. We are to love them. We are called to call people to repentance and faith. 
But the fact is, this is just one of several trends that betray what, what happens when a culture, uh, and in particular, a culture that denies the doctrine of creation, and in particular for our purposes, the doctrine of the image of God, when that is ignored, when that is rejected. Anything goes. Anything goes. And that's why verses 26 to the end of this chapter are so very vital for us. And the first thing we see in Genesis 1, 26, is God creating humankind according to his image. This is day six. This is the apex of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the the crown of God's handiwork, his creation, is humanity. And this is seen in several ways here. First of all, there's, a, there's an ascending order of significance in Genesis 1. It goes from non-life to life, and then it ends with the greatest life, that is God's image bearers. Secondly, of the creative acts, this is the only one that is preceded by these words, let us make man in our image. Now, we could go uh, a while on that, but you see this one God, there's a plurality in the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. That's certainly not the angels. Angels are not image bearers, and the angels are not involved in creation. Only God creates. And so even from Genesis 1 on, we recognize that though God is one, there's a plurality in this Godhead. Third, this event is given the longest description in all of Genesis 1. God created the various uh, aspects of creation, and it just moves on. But here, he flies his helicopter over this section. This is a very important text. That's what that's telling us. Uh, Four, throughout this previous narrative, each creature is made according to its kind. But here, mankind is created according to the image of God. Of course, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the pharaohs had hijacked that notion of image bearing. It was taught that the pharaohs were God's image bearers. In fact, they had divinity in themselves, and and Moses is taking that on and says, no, yes, image uh, of God language is kingly language, but it's not just the pharaohs who are kingly. God has created all of humanity to be kingly, and we'll see in a couple of minutes why that is so important. Finally, and we're going to see this in verse 27, the creation of humankind is specifically noted as being created as male and female. Look with me in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
he created them. Now, this is the first poetry in the Bible. It's verse 27. That's not to say it's not to be taken literally. It's just that God um, has a, he's the one who invented poetry and poets. And you see this poetry here, and it consists of three lines with the word bara, created out of nothing. That's where we get that ex nihilo, out of nothing, is from that uh, word to create. We see it three times in verse 27. Now, up to this point, Moses has not considered, he hasn't put any emphasis on gender with regard to other forms of life, like when he's creating, God's creating the animal kingdom. But here, for the first time, with his image bearers, we see the emphasis on the two genders, male and female. And because this is so fundamental to God's purposes for humanity, it should not surprise us that it's under attack. So, for instance, American feminist writer Camille Pag uh, Paglia uh, says in one of her works, I consider myself neither gay nor straight, neither male nor female, neither human being nor animal. Well, that's because she feels that way. And that's what happens when you lose objective truth, external authority. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Our Judith Lorber, a, a feminist writer, she longs for the day when gender distinctives have disappeared. Get this, when we no longer ask if it's a boy or it's a girl. In order to start gendering an infant, infant when the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes. Now, this may sound shocking to you, but I'm telling you, this is growing in our culture. We live in a bubble a little bit here in Auburn, but it's coming to a theater near you. Only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. See, that's that hardcore egalitarianism which means we're to be equal not only in our essence but equal in our roles and function and when that happens there will no longer be any need for any gender at all they see that as their gospel hope and Moses long before anyone could conceive that that would be a movement is taking that on. Isn't God wise? The scriptures are our wisdom. What's also remarkable here is that this text describes the result of God's creative acts by both a plural and a singular pronoun. So notice in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. And in verse 27, God created man in his own image so is Moses crazy as he's writing this is he schizophrenic is he has he lost a, any sense of grammar no I think Moses is writing greater than he knows God is one and that there is plurality and so in verse 27 it's clear that God is one verse 26 there's plurality in the Godhead now why is that important for us well first of all we need to worship the true and living God the one revealed in Scripture but for our purposes, uh, it signals that not only does the individual human image God, but there's a sense in which we can't image him optimally apart from community. 
And so when I'm isolated, that doesn't mean I'm not the image of God. Or if I'm single, that does not mean I'm not the image of God. But there's something about community that optimally images the community in the Godhead. Now, a few truths just for a moment here concerning the image, the image of God. First of all, the image of God is universal in the human race. There are many ethnicities, there's one race, if we're thinking scripturally. So the, the image of God is universal. There is no tribe, there's no people group that's more or less the image than any other people group, ethnicity or sex. Second, the image of God has not been lost even though we had a fall. Even though we sinned against God, the image has not been lost. It's just been distorted. It, it's been marred by sin. And so we still image him. Even, even if you're an unbeliever, you image God. It's just that you bear false witness in your imaging. So for instance, even as a believer, when I am anxious are discouraged, I'm still imaging God. But what I'm doing in that moment is I am saying my God can't provide. My God is not good. My God cannot be trusted. But I'm always imaging God. If I slander, I'm saying our God is a slanderous God. If I'm judgmental, I'm saying God is a judgmental God. We image God in everything we do. Because that's who we are. We're image bearers. Third, there is no indication that the image is present in one person to a greater degree than in another. So if you're, you may be uniquely talented, and, uh, but that does not mean you bear more of the image than someone who has less talents. God's image is stamped on every human being. As well, the image is something in the very nature of our humanity, in the way that we were made. And in fact, the way God has constituted us as his image bearers is related to his divine purpose for us. And that divine purpose is seen all the way back in verse 26, to take dominion. Of course, we're going to see more of that in verse 28. We have been given a dominion, and so we have to have the essence to carry out our purpose. So if an eagle is to fly, it has to have the essence of an eagle. And in the same way, if we're going to carry out God's purposes in the mandate he entrusts to us, we have to have the essence to carry that out. Indeed, Herman Bovink, one of my favorites, says this, only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God as priest dedicating itself to God and as ruler or king controlling the earth and the whole of creation only it is the fully finished image uh, as well creation in the image of God is the basis for human uniqueness and dignity and so I love animals but they do not deserve rights equal to humanity we are distinct from the animal world and that's what gives us dignity 
And that's why Christianity and the worldview of Christianity has been behind the great movements in history that has overcome such things as uh, infanticide, genocides, and, and slavery. So, for instance, uh, in Tompkins' biography of William Wilberforce, he writes the following account that I've always seen as moving. In November 1759, a slave ship arrived in the Caribbean, ravaged by dysentery. Luckily, it ran into the British fleet there and appealed for help. The only doctor willing to go on board was an evangelical Christian named James Ramsey. So he's a Christian. He's the only one willing to go on that ship because of the sickness that was running rampant. His first introduction to the slave trade was a hold full of dying prisoners covered in blood and excrement. Quitting the Navy after leg injury, he became an Anglican minister where as well as his official duties, he enraged the plantation managers by preaching to the slaves and condemning their mistreatment. For 14 years, he faced violent opposition and filled their heads with the notion, speaking to the slaves, that they were made in the image of God. And, and I would argue that Ramsey's ministry here was an application of what we see in verse 28. Notice what this is verse 28, very important passage. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we don't need to overlook the blessing here. Uh, true blessing... Remember this comes from God. When we seek unmediated blessing, and if you're not finding your blessing from the hand of God, you're going to go on a search for blessing because we're hardwired for blessing. And, and so true blessing comes from the hand of God. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And so when we seek it in an unmediated way, so for instance, when Abraham had his affair uh, on Sarah with Hagar, when we seek unmediated blessing, all manner of, of dysfunction and brokenness occurs. Indeed, throughout the remainder of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the divine blessing is going to be a major thing. We're going to see it in Genesis. But that blessing is for a purpose. It's not so that we could just receive it as, as a, a cul-de-sac kind of person. We're to be conduits of the blessing. God blesses us for a purpose. In fact, we see that purpose right here. We never move past this purpose. And it, we see it with five commands in this verse 28. Notice, first of all, be fruitful and multiply. That's two commands. Now, there are some people who are called to singleness. And that is not a curse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that's a gift. In fact, if you're single tonight, you have the gift of singleness. Until you don't. 
And you don't know when that's going to happen. Your job's not to find your mate. Your, your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then God finds the mate for you. He'll, you'll be at the right place at the right time. I mean, God didn't even need a woman, um, didn't need another person in creation to provide Adam a wife. He just created one out there on the spot. And, and that's how he works. We don't have to go. But until you're married, you have the gift of singleness. But some people have the permanent gift of singleness. Uh, they can carry out this mandate to be fruitful, multiply in, a, in another way, which we'll talk about in a moment. But in the main, this is the calling of believers. Be fruitful, multiply. Notice he says, fill the earth. What does that tell you? Adam and Eve were not to stay in the, in the precincts of the Garden of Eden. Scholars tell us that they were to extend the borders of the garden until the whole earth was Edenized with the presence of God. And so they were to fill the earth and then notice the fourth command, subdue it and have dominion. Have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And remember, we're imaging God in the process. So for instance, in verses 1 to 10 of Genesis 1, God is shown subduing chaos and, and ruling over chaos. He's bringing about an ordered world. Likewise, his image bearers are commissioned to reproduce God's own activity in creation. We are to um, subdue and fill the earth um, and then in the final days of creation, we see in Genesis 1 that God is filling. He's filling the heavens with a starry host and filling the earth with animate life. And Adam and all of Adam's children are to pattern that reproduction. And that requires two genders. It requires two genders that are not to be confused. And any confusion is an assault on the original mandate entrusted to his image bearers. In fact, this has been called, and you've probably heard this phrase, the cultural mandate. It's the cultural mandate, and it reflects the idea that we're not merely to reproduce but to apply this mandate to all of life. And so while God is the center of the story, he, he's the point of the story, and in particular, his son, all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is the point of the story. He is the center of the story. His image bearers are central to God's unfolding plan. You can say it this way. We are his supporting characters. We are commissioned to Edenize the world and show the world the glory of God. Practically speaking, uh, this mandate means, uh, and man, I don't know of a church that does this better. There's so many various uh, vocations represented in this church, uh, so many different ways you can carry out this mandate, but we are to pursue every uh, intellectual, technological, aesthetic, and social discipline to establish a culture 
of God-drenched wonder. That's what our calling is. And, and that's what amazed the psalmist in Psalm 8 when he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And part of that blessing for the mandate is sustenance and God's good provision. Notice me in verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. And so he provides nourishment for his image bearers in the form of vegetables and fruits. Now this contrasts greatly with the Mesopotamian um, pagan view Uh, of the universe's origin where man was created in order to supply food for the gods. Well, our God is transcendent. Uh, He is in need of nothing. He needs no physical sustenance. This physical sustenance is for his image bearers. But note, because there was no death before sin entered the world, Originally, the humans were vegetarian. Uh, they were not meat-eating, and neither were the animals. Look with me in verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So the animal kingdom is not carnivorous either. Um, and, and that is why I believe that there was no death until sin entered the world. In fact, I would argue, based on Isaiah 11, that you know, Isaiah says that in the, in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth, as the waters cover the sea, the wolf will graze with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like an ox, which indicates that eating meat was a post-fall reality. I'm not forbidding that. In fact, I encourage it. (laughs) And that brings us to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He is setting us up, Moses, for Genesis 3. Um, God didn't make things messed up. And everything, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here it is demonstrated again that the physical world in which God made is good. But as we know, it didn't stay that way. The fall came, and the image of God was damaged as a result. And now, we still image him, but we bear false witness. We still take dominion, but not for his glory. We do it 
in our own Babel building construction businesses to make a name for ourselves. We live for ourselves. In other words, the cultural mandate still remains, but it's going to be carried out in a broken way. And that's why we need a redeemer. In fact, for Christians, now we understand we're still called to be fruitful and multiply. And so if you're called to singleness, you're still called to be fruitful and multiply. You do that through discipleship. Just like we saw this morning when Andrew was fruitful and multiplied himself in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to his brother, Simon. Um, for us who are married, if we can, some, some uh, married couples are providentially hindered from having children. Um, that's not a curse on them. That's just God's frowning providence. But if we can, we're called to be fruitful and multiply. Now, remember, you're multiplying little atoms. So you're not multiplying perfect image bearers. You're, you're multiplying little atoms who bear false witness against God. And so now in a post-fall context, we are fruitful, we are multiplying, but now we have a responsibility to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on those little atoms so that they can find their hope in the last atom, the second atom. Indeed, this Adam, this true and faithful Adam will come. And as we saw last time, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. It's been testified somewhere. You made him for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Speaking of humanity, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And by the grace of God, this new humanity, united to the Son of God, begin to have our image restored. You see that in Ephesians 4.24. You see that in Colossians 3.10. You see that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Our salvation, in, in essence, is having our image restored according to the perfect image of the Son of God. And the byproduct of that is that now we are given new marching orders to take this cultural mandate, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to take dominion, to rule, to subdue, we take the gospel and we bring that to bear on this broken world. That is your calling as a Christian. And we learn that of all places in Genesis 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And we just pray that you would teach each of us what it means to image you faithfully in our sphere of influence. To take dominion, to rule by the gospel. Give us opportunities to love our neighbor with the gospel. Give us opportunities to be fruitful and multiply with the gospel. Father, I pray for every believer here this evening. Grant us wisdom. May we appropriate the mind of Christ in our spheres of influence. You have given us specific areas of influence, and that is your strategy for us. Oh, Lord, that we may faithfully bear a witness to the glory of your name 
and the Son of God who is the perfect image bearer. And Father, if there's any here tonight that have never trusted in Jesus, we pray that they would flee to the perfect image bearer and find their salvation in him. The one who perfectly imaged you as our substitute and then was crucified for our having borne false witness as your broken image bearers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.